gets to a point in leadership where it's actually just indulgent to give in to your feelings of inadequacy. The more ingredients we have, the more opinions, the more the differences, the more interesting the answers are, right? You always put yourself on top, then it's time to look for options. You know the rules of the game, you can win. Welcome to The Imposterous. The Imposterous is hosted by me, Graham Drew, and Michael Knox. Two rather insecure frauds who will be exploring the motivating and debilitating experiences we all have with imposter syndrome, with a sneaky suspicion that it might just be your superpower, if you let it. You know what, I don't want to be as good as you, I want to be far better than you. I want to fucking eclipse you, man. You know, the venom is real. <laughs> I, was just, I was just showing Graham the hat that I have that accompanies this um, suit and tie, but I, it, it's possibly too much. <laughs> Add to add an ad of savoir faire that's both unexpected yeah. and inappropriate. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> you know, just a bit of credibility that you know. Yeah, thank you, Matt. Yeah. Thank you for noticing yeah. that. <laughs> I can see what you're going for. So Matt, as you so know, what, what we're doing here is we want to talk about imposter syndrome and whether it's a good or bad thing or whether it exists or how it plays out with creatives. Graham and I have yep. a, a theory that it may not be a bad thing. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, potentially in our pursuit to make creatives more awesome, it might be good to recognise the fact that you're out of your depth. That we're always on the edge of being fired or whatever it might be. (laughs) Yes. So just to talk about you for a minute. So you joined McCann Health as the global chief creative officer in at the start of 2019. Yes. And before that, you were the worldwide chief creative officer of JWT when they believed they needed one. Yes, when, exactly. <laughs> on, on their way to yeah. winning a record number of Lions, which I yeah. think they hadn't won in 154 years or 150 years. Well, that was years. the funny thing. I mean, it's it's one thing when you don't have it and then you have it and you think, oh, well, we're fine. We don't need that. It's like and then, <laughs> now, now, it's, now where is it? It's gone. So, well, yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's very interesting. <laughs> um, and you've worked at a number of agencies in Melbourne where I am. Um, which I kind of recall your your input into some, an ANZ campaign of, you know, there's never been a better time to move, which seems yes. like some time ago now. Yeah. Um, God, that was way back when, yeah. Yes. Um, I think it was like 96 or something like that when I was – I lived there for four years. Right. Yeah, it was a great, great campaign. And then you went with MNC to London, is that right? So, yeah, sort of, of, of yeah, a bit of a roundabout. Uh, via New York, yes. Yeah. So I actually got uh, it's a bit of a weird, a bit of a weird story. I was supposed to go and run the London office, and then as, about two weeks before I left, uh, Morris rang me and said, "Oh, look, the creative director of our New York office has just resigned. How would you feel about stopping off in New York for three months while we find the replacement, and then come to London?" I'm like, "That sounds horrible." Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, so I came to New York and. Um, and actually just loved it. Got on really, really well with the CEO. And, and, you know, he said, why don't you why don't you take the job and stay in New York? I'm like, well, I'm supposed to be in London. And, you know, they were great. But Morris said, you know, it's fine. We need somewhere in both places. So you do that, you know. And so I was in New York. But then after a year, September 11th happened. So, so basically the whole office, our biggest client was British Airways. Right. So, you know, the, the, everything just imploded. And so I ended up moving to London that next year. So I was, wasn't in New York, New York very long and then moved to London. I stayed there for four and a half years, but came back to New York, obviously. Yeah. And then, and then you're at DDB, right? The DDB time. 
Um, yes. Yeah. In Australia, you headed, you were the chairman of DDB in Australia? Yeah, uh, vice chairman of DDB uh, of Sydney, Melbourne. And when they had, that was when they had Brisbane as well, which uh, was sort of closed during the time I was there. And then, yeah, then I got transferred from there to run DDB New York. And that's where it took me up to JWT. Right. And DDB New York, you you describe as needing a bit of a renovation in, the, in that it was yes. a big agency that wasn't really yeah. doing any good work. Well, I have to say I was shocked when I got there because, uh, you know, if, for me it's one of the iconic agencies for everyone, I'm sure, in the world. I mean, literally you could walk into the office that Bill Burnback sat in that's right there. Um, but when I got there I found out that they hadn't won a lion for 17 years. And Whoa. I was like, how is that possible? Like you are DDB New York. Like don't they have invented categories to make sure everyone can get a line in 17 years? Yeah, it was crazy. So um for me it was just like, okay, we gotta put this agency back on the map creatively. And uh, and that was that was the goal. And you know, by the time I left, uh, we were the third most awarded agency in the States behind Wyden and Droga, which was nice. So yeah, um brilliant. You know, Sorry, so mate, I, I wanted to ask you about um, all the all the all the moves that you've had and and what you've done with the um, the agencies that you've moved to and how you've lifted them. And I want to just talk about ambition and whether you think that creatives, the better ones, are highly ambitious. We always talk about you know entrepreneurial that we do, they do put themselves in over their heads most of the time and kind of have to catch up. And whether that's just part of the makeup of, of good creatives. I mean, I think it is. The interesting thing for me as I've travelled the world is mm-hmm. I've begun to discover that some of it is cultural. Like I think there are countries where um, and regions where that is more true. Um, so I think it's true of Australia. I think most creatives in Australia just when you get into the business, you get in and you get in and you go as quickly and hard and fast as you can and it's just a sort of a natural inbuilt ambition i think it's uh you know i've discovered it's true of a lot of latin american countries you know brazil in particular um i'm sure we all know amazing brazilian creatives who just knock it out of the park every time but i think what i'm what i have found is that and maybe because it's the u.s is so vast there are definitely creatives here where it's just a job you know, it's it's my nine to five, and that's what I do. Um, and I've come up against that, you know, a few times where it's like, um, you know, that because my inbuilt intuition is just to, you know, do amazing, the best, very best work I can, and try and win awards and all of that stuff. No one ever had to tell me to do that, as you say. It's just like that's who I am. And I've kind of, uh, you know, I've come up against creatives in my department sometimes who are like equate quality with effort of like I put in eight hours on that so why don't you like it I'm like well it's not very good but I worked really hard on it but it's not very good so that that was interesting to me and um and and, you know so I think what I've realized is it's not always the way but the ones that uh it's kind of like every uh kind of seven creatives like gets the shot in the neck okay now you're going to go after awards and be incredibly as successful as you can and it's just a given but there are those ones that just don't get that shot um, yeah I worked with so, uh, um, yeah. I remember working at an agency and the CEO gathering everyone together and saying that we should think about it as the creative department are sprinters and account management run marathons and until you can right. both learn how to 
<laughs> run the same race. Run together. Yeah. This isn't going anywhere. And it was yeah. quite a good analogy, I thought. An estimated 10 million people worldwide have Parkinson's disease. Studies show that losing your sense of smell may be an early warning sign of the disease. And coffee is one of the most commonly affected scents. Introducing Parkinson's, a simple way to turn coffee into an early diagnostic tool for Parkinson's. So we educated coffee drinkers with unique coffee cup sleeves and posters. I did a speech a few years ago uh, in Cannes called Passion Trumps Talent. I search for the people who are passionate about creative success and and I think that's a bigger um, that's that's a bigger skill or a bigger you know desire in hiring uh, because I think you can be you know relatively uh, creatively talented but if you're incredibly passionate then you're just going to keep going and keep going and the knockdowns are not going to kill you and you're just going to keep going and do better and better but I do find you know the, the reverse of that is sometimes I find you know, I, I know I've met people who are incredibly talented, but a little bit like when they get knocked back, they're like, oh, well, screw that. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, because um, we are tested so, a lot. We are we are put on trial, if, if you like. You know, yeah. particularly the, you know, the, the more prolific you are, the more on trial and, and potentially the less you care about it, but the more we are tested. Just wondering, when was the first time you felt like you didn't belong or, you know, to use a word that we use in here quite often, like a fraud? Yeah. I mean, it was, I've had that a number of times throughout my career, but I guess the most interesting thing for me is when I first moved from Perth to Sydney and I was reasonably successful there, like I won some local Perth Art Directors Club awards and things like that. But when I, when I moved to Sydney, you know, all of the, I, I mean, I felt like I just wasn't matched up to uh, all of the successful creatives that I'd looked at you know, in, in the award annual, et cetera, for all those years. That that was the first time I kind of felt like, oh, God, I, I think it, I might get found out. Like I'm not, you know, at that time for me, it was like Rocky Ronaldo and, um, uh, you know, Craig Moore and, you know, all those guys were like uh, Graham Smith and, you know, they're all hugely successful. And I was like, okay, I'm not any of those and I don't have that reputation. So I did feel like a bit of a fake, um, which was... <laughs> It took me a while to kind of grapple with that. Starting my career in a place like Perth, I actually had skills that no one else had because I'd been used to working at an incredible pace because Perth was basically just retail advertising 24-7. So nothing was ever like, oh, we'll come back to us in a month. It's like, come back to us in two or three days. So what I realized is I was quick. And I was like, oh, okay. And I just presumed everyone was the same as me. And But when I was working alongside the Sydney creators, I'm like, oh, they're not as quick as me. That's okay. And then I also realized I was used to getting a lot for a little. Like, there's no money there. You know, I w worked out how to um, uh, kind of do big things with no money, I guess. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. It was, it was a lesson that uh, later at Saatchi's, Bob Isherwood talked about. He's like, you know, we're, if, if you get a budget and you don't have the money and all you have the money for is, the, is a tabletop ad, they make it the world's best tabletop ad. Like, don't try and make something else. Um, but I think I learned that quite early. So, in a way, um, the restrictions that were placed on me, um, you know, helped me get better at better mm. skills and better at my job. And it, I think that skill kind of is transferable yeah. and and 
and not having all the luxuries in the world makes you better at your job in a way. I think one of the, um, I'm just, A, I'm waking up, B, <laughs> you're, B, what you're saying is super, really provocative and it's really making me think about a lot of stuff that I've experienced too. And I, I think, especially when you were talking about um, creatives from different cultures and how they approach things, and I, and I totally agree with you, there is definitely a, a cultural, certain cultures are better fitted to this game because there's, um, you need that ambition and I think ambition sometimes gets confused with arrogance as well, especially from people yeah. from the outside. And they're not the same. They are not no, the same. But people see, yeah. can sometimes perceive it the same. It's like, no, he just wants the moon. And that's fine because he's reaching for it yeah. all the time. Yeah. And that's and the thing is, is that you're not. And that's fine. But because he's got that passion, he's just going to keep going or she's just going to keep going and keep going. And it's something that I've observed as well. It's almost like, they need to ask for permission to shoot that high. It's just like, well, I, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not supposed to. No, man, you can do anything. It's very hard for me to look at this. So please, please listen to what our son has to say. Yo, it's me. It's Guac. I've been gone for two years and nothing's changed, bro. The election in November is the first one I could have voted in, but I'll never get to choose the kind of world I wanted to live in. So you've got to replace my vote. Oh, it's, it's extraordinary and utterly, utterly heartbreaking. If it takes your breath away, imagine the impact this video has on Joaquin Oliver's parents. Using technology, allowing their son to call on voters to bring changes. We recreated his expressions, his voice, the way he moves. On unfinishedvotes.com, people could replace the votes for Joaquin and other gun violence victims. Every time a lost loved one was uploaded, the site and social content changed in honor of that person. Joaquin's parents it's have made their it duty to fight for change. The Oliver family, my heart goes out to you. What you're doing really matters. So let's all get together and defeat gun violence before gun violence defeats us. Vote for me, because I can't. I mean, it's really interesting yeah. that you should say that because that was that was my big challenge when I got to DDB New York because they didn't believe that they could be an award-winning agency because yeah. they hadn't won awards in such a long time. And actually, the first thing I had to do was make them believe it. And people said to me, like, we're not Droga 5. We're not. I'm like, there's no kind of rule that says they win and we don't. And at the beginning, nobody thought we could ever be that. Um, so, you know, it was very, it was a slow build, but I had to sort of find mini targets along the way of like, if we just win this, it'll make everyone realize, oh, look at us, like we did that. And then yeah. if we just win that, and yeah, it's, it's interesting because part of it is that belief and that desire and that sort of unleashes people in a way, but you're right, not everyone, it's not intrinsic, I think, or it's not, you know, it's not something that everyone automatically uh, sort of latches onto. No, and I'm, I mean, this is just a, a personal thing, but it's just that balance of like, how do I f light the fire of ambition without sounding like a wanker <laughs> and, <laughs> and making it feel achievable without being arrogant? And then it's just, it's really hard. It's really tricky. Yeah, but I think yeah. you're right. It is the sort of, 
you have to try and light those little fires and go, look, see, you can do that. I know yeah, you thought you yeah. couldn't. And, you know, you, we're not a drug of fire, but you know what, drug of fire are full of people like us. It's just that they yeah, have a different exactly. name above the board exactly. and they just happen to believe it. It's yeah. just... My father had this quote when I was growing up, which I've said many, many times, but it's uh, he always used to say to me, there's no such thing as luck. Luck is when oper- opportunity meets preparation. It's not going to happen just because you're lucky. It's because you work your ass off. <laughs> And you're ready to be successful because you've, you know, you've learned that process. The immunization history of a child. It's what doctors the world over refer to and check which vaccine is due. But this is Afghanistan, a land with the world's worst infant mortality rate where traditional biases and remote areas mean doctors have to work without proper immunization history. We are facing a lot of challenges uh, due to high level of illiteracy and uh, different uh, traditional beliefs in the community. To counter Afghanistan's traditional bias against immunization, we turn to another tradition. This little bracelet is a common sight in Afghanistan a lucky charm that protects Afghan newborns from evil forces. Today, this bracelet protects from much more. This is the immunity charm, a simple thread with colored beads that are messages from doctors to each other and to the people of Afghanistan. Each colored bead is code for a specific vaccine. With every vaccination, doctors add the corresponding bead to the bracelet. A reminder of a baby's immunization history worn by the baby. Requiring just one hour training programs, the immunity charm has excited the healthcare community in Afghanistan and beyond. When you very kindly responded to our email reaching out to you, you said um, on your email, I've never felt greater imposter syndrome than when I was heading up MSC Saatchi in London. In my first pitch, I was standing next to Maurice Saatchi. That's quite hard, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, every Did story. Did you high five that, or no? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean, before before I tell you that story, I will say that one of my greatest memories and moments in my career was when uh, the management team of MNC Saatchi London, including Morris, he took us all out for dinner to celebrate me taking over as the ECD of MNC Saatchi in London. And so he did a toast to me. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, like this is, you know, I don't know. It was just like, I just thought all of that stuff of like, oh God, I'm this kid from Perth and I can't believe Marasachi is toasting me. And, you know, so it, 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 he was great like that and incredibly positive. But, you know, I felt like I'd walked into the absolute, uh, the Olympics of advertising when I walked into MC Saatchi because all of my heroes were there. You know, James Lowther, Simon Dicketts, Fergus Fleming, Tiger Savage, Morris, Charles, they're all there, and and even six years prior, Fergus was my boss at uh, at Saatchi's in Sydney. So the whole thing had sort of turned around. It almost paralysed me. Like it was, I just felt so intimidated to put my ideas in front of these people because I'd looked up to them for so long, and they, you know, they had hundreds of DMT pencils between them, etc. And and it was that it was that very first pitch that I did. Um, where I just, I kind of almost was like a deer in the headlights. I was afraid to commit to an idea and put it out and show it to everyone. I almost sort of had to 
talk myself into it and go, look, if you fail, you fail, and that's it. But you, you haven't failed that greatly during your career so far. So just put it out there and hopefully they'll like it. And, uh, and you know, we, we, I did that and uh, everyone loved the direction that I'd chosen and that we were going in. And, and I remember Morris uh, just before the pitch saying to me, you know, you've done an amazing thing, Matt. You've given this client what every client desires. Um, you've given this, them this, it's not just an idea, this is a platform. And, um, and, you know, his words carry such weight when he says something like that to you. And I don't know if he was just saying it just to kind of hype me up and, you know, because he knew who he was. But it just, I was walking on air and I went into the pitch feeling like I was going to be successful. And of course, I wasn't. We didn't win the pitch. But nonetheless, you know. And, and the funny thing about that I always loved about Morris is he almost rose above everyone, including the client, because he would say in meetings, you know, he as if he was like, omnipotent like he would say to the client you know i think i think the the great thing that the agency has done here is blah 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 as if he was part of their and they'd be like yes morris yes um and i'm like it's genius because he knew the power he had and um uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see if he ever felt like an imposter. You strike me as someone that goes places to be uncomfortable. Now you're you're head of a health agency, right? And, yeah, and, and health, yeah. health is going through a huge renaissance, which actually you're hugely responsible for as well. When you went there, though, because I mean, for the longest time, and it is changing, health agencies were kind of separate, right? You know, you had mm. the, the big creative mm. bit, and then there was the health department. Yeah. And yeah. Um, yeah. And thinking about not belonging, did you sort of look yourself in the mirror and think, what the hell do I know about pharma? <laughs> I <laughs> most definitely did. Um, I mean, it was interesting because uh, the, the move into health sort of coincided with uh, I, I turned 50 and uh, I think I was having not a, not a crisis or anything, but I was, I was starting to think about, well, what's, what is going to be the final kind of chapter of my career? Um, uh, you know, and I was, and I'd done some work in health and I was really intrigued by it. And I, and, you know, there was just, you know, at the same time I was doing that, I was selling Rolex watches and Ford cars and everything, but I, I just knew that the work I was doing in health, I don't, it was changing people's lives in a much more profound way. And, and I, and I kind of, I sort of felt like I was at the beginning again, like, this is great. Like this feels important and I can use creativity to, you know, one of the first projects I did was um, helping uh, create a prosthetic leg for a veteran coming back from uh, from war who couldn't swim, uh, because uh, uh, whether you know it or not, when you uh, when you have a prosthetic leg, you have to have two different legs, one for swimming and one for land. So if you go to the beach, you've got to like leg off, leg on in the water, out leg off, and I'm like, how? It's kind of humiliating. Researchers have developed a first-of-its-kind prosthetic swim leg. They say it could dramatically change the lives of nearly 2 million Americans who've lost a limb. Kenneth Craig got a look at what researchers are calling the fin and the group that's putting it to the test. Kevin Vaughn is back in the water, swimming in a way he hasn't been able to since he lost his leg seven years ago. It's huge. I'm not just kicking with one leg anymore. 
The 28-year-old is wearing the fin, a first-of-its-kind prosthetic leg, giving people like Kevin the ability to get in and out of water and move through it with ease. So I worked on that project, and, and, and I met the guy, and, uh, and I was like, this is amazing. And then it, it sort of fell into place where I got approached by McCann Health to lead that network. And I, you know, I very openly said, look, I am not your pharma guy. Like, I, I, you know, I don't know anything about, uh, you know, serious disease or anything. And I even feel like I'm, you know, out, I'm way out of my depth. And the CEO, who uh, is Australian, actually, uh, is amazing. And he just said to me, we don't want somebody who knows pharma. We want someone who doesn't know pharma. Um, and, but we want someone who knows ideas. And I'm like, well, I know ideas. <laughs> Um, but, uh, you know, I, I said, if you're happy to have someone who's going to sort of come across as a little bit of a moron every now and then, then I, you know, I'm willing to do it and, and I'm excited by it. And they were like, that's exactly what we want. And, you know, it, the beauty of it is, uh, you know, I walk in with no preconceived ideas. I get told often, well, this is how you meant to do it. I'm like, why wouldn't we do it this way? And, and just question stuff. It's it's fun because the opportunities are real, life changing, you know, moments for uh, people suffering from debilitating disease, etc. And you know, and as it turned out, I happened I happened to choose moving into health at exactly the right moment as the world was going through its greatest health crisis ever. You know, yeah. and so uh, yeah, it's you know, it's worked out really well. And uh, but I've you know, I've loved the work that I've been able to do in the last sort of three years it's been amazing and so so much of what we've um we're uncovering with the imposterous is is the is the confidence to be the idiot in the room because you're you, and, yeah. and to be and to be open about it um yeah and that that and it's because that's when you actually that's where you that's when you're digging for the good stuff isn't it but having the confidence to be open about your naivety is is, is tough because I think, you know, when you become a creative leader, you're happy, you're happy. So you sort of go, like, I don't know anything, tell me. But when you're younger, you're debilitated by that. You can't ever, yeah. be, because you yeah. haven't earned your spurs yeah, yet. And you've got your bosses looking at you and the clients yeah. looking at you and everyone, you're yeah. thinking everyone's judging me. Um, yeah. yeah, but, you know, I mean, again, I did a speech which was, uh, don't be afraid to be the dumbest person in the room. And that's mm. exactly what it's about. It's like, Nobody, people love telling you what they know, but <laughs> so particularly like if you That's walk true. up to a client and show interest in what they do, what they do, how they manufacture it, what, you know, how does it get made? What's the process? They love telling you. So they're never going to be pissed with you. Um, and to your point, they, they're going to think that you're really trying to understand their product or, and, and that's never a bad thing. But, but yeah. the heart of it is what you're saying though, right? Is that, is that actually... No one's ever going to complain about someone wanting to be curious about what they've dedicated their life to doing. Far worse to be aloof and just sort of like pretend to. Yeah. Far better yeah. to actually just have a genuine conversation about it. Yeah. And I guess the surprise to me is, uh, is I didn't realize until I'd stepped out of, you know, consumer advertising, how much I knew about branding and advertising. They didn't necessarily know in pharma because yeah. that's and, and you know, because we've we've all been doing it for many many years, and you just think, well, is it special? Like, doesn't everyone know how to do this? And then when I went in and talked to, you know, I remember talking to a particular client about how I, you know, I worked on McDonald's for ten years and how we built the brand and all this, and they were just like 
absolutely on the edge of their seat, like, oh, wow, okay. So, so if we took that, I, you know, we built it using that philosophy. And, and so I'm like, oh, am I giving pearls of wisdom now? <laughs> I have no idea that I even had them. So uh, it's, it's quite interesting that I'm discovering the things that I know that others don't as well. So, uh, so cool. Pat, this, is, um, this has been great. That was brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks, You've, um, I've, I've woken up to some very intelligent chat, and thank you for that. <laughs> that was a joy. Thanks. Thank you Thank you for asking me. It was uh, always fun. I, I love, a, love a good podcast, so it's, it's fun. Thank you very much for listening to The Imposterous. Apart from our fine, imposterous guests, none of this would have been possible without the help of the following wonderful frauds. Firstly, Andrew Stevenson at We Love Jam Studios, best music and sound house in Australia. Without his help, this would have been a series of WhatsApp messages with emoji responses. And also Hilton Mode, who has graced us with his theme music that you're listening to now. If you would like to catch up on all the other podcasts in The Imposterous series, visit theimposterous.com. You can also get in touch with us via email.